Hi, I'm Hallie Ritsu. And I'm Allison Friedman. And we're the hosts of Personal Jurisdiction, a podcast geared towards helping law students and lawyers explore the variety of career paths available to JDs. And my name is Jonah Perlin, and I'm the host of the How I Lawyer podcast, which is a podcast that interviews lawyers from across the profession about what they do, why they do it, and how they do it well. This month, May 2022, our podcasts are joining together to feature interviews that focus on a key topic facing our profession, mental health. Although it's not talked about nearly enough, lawyers have long faced serious mental health challenges. And in many instances, these challenges begin during law school and increase throughout lawyers' careers. And the COVID-19 pandemic has amplified these challenges in ways that we're only now just learning about. We are obviously not mental health professionals, nor are we able to solve these problems. That said, we're hoping to use our podcast platforms to connect you, our listeners, to lawyers who have thought deeply about these topics and in some cases have gone through their own challenges too. We hope you learn from these interviews and that they can further destigmatize the conversation about mental health in the legal profession and maybe even provide you with some tools and inspiration in your own journey. So this month, no matter which of our podcast feeds you listen to, you'll hear the same series of interviews centered on this important topic of mental health. So for example, How I Lawyer listeners, you'll get a chance to hear interviews hosted by my friends from Personal Jurisdiction. And Personal Jurisdiction listeners will get to hear some interviews that I hosted. Also, just a heads up that next month, both shows will return to their regularly scheduled programming. We hope you enjoy and gain something from these interviews. And we hope you'll interact with us on social media, including on Twitter, where you can find us at PersonalJXPod. And you can find me at Jonah Perlin. You can also subscribe to our shows wherever you get your podcasts or on LinkedIn. And a quick word of thanks to Law Pods for editing and engineering this introduction and the How I Lawyer-based episodes. And thanks to you for listening. Welcome back to Mental Health Awareness Month, a collaboration between the Personal Jurisdiction and the How I Lawyer podcasts. Today, we welcome Dr. Diana Uchiyama to the podcast. Dr. Diana is the executive director of the Illinois Lawyers Assistance Program, a not-for-profit organization that helps Illinois lawyers, judges, law students, and their families concerned about alcohol or substance abuse or dependency, mental health issues including depression, anxiety, and suicidal thinking, or stress-related issues such as compassion fatigue and burnout. Prior to joining LAB, she was the Administrator of Psychological Services for DuPage County. Dr. Diana was also an Assistant Public Defender in Cook County for over a decade. Dr. Diana earned her BA from the University of Illinois, her JD from Pepperdine University School of Law, her MS in Clinical Psychology from Benedictine University, and her Doctor of Clinical Psychology from Midwestern University. Dr. Diana has so many great observations about how to cultivate better mental health practices in the law generally and about how to take care of your own mental health. We hope you enjoy the show. Dr. Diana, welcome to Personal Jurisdiction. Thanks for having me, Hallie and Allison. It's really great to be here, and I'm so happy to be able to talk. We really appreciate your being here and your expertise. We're really excited to chat about your background, the work that you do at the Illinois Lawyers Assistance Program, and some of your observations about mental health and the law and the legal profession. So Dr. Diana, we, as a career-focused podcast, we often start at the beginning and ask guests why they went to law school. And I think in your circumstances too, informing your career as an attorney and as a mental health professional, it's a really interesting part of your story. So can you tell us a little bit about why you decided to go to law school? 
I am the product of immigrant parents. And so my parents immigrated here with my older brother and sister. And so education was really stressed in my family. And, you know, based on the culture of my father, he always hoped that I would be a medical doctor. But alas, I don't like the smell of hospitals. And it's not that I have a phobia against blood, but it was never in my wheelhouse. And so it became a question of uh, not about whether I would go to college, but what I would do with my life. And my younger brother has Down syndrome. And so I think that really was, he's really my idol and role model because I learned to advocate for him with my mother. And then that became a passion for me because I feel that there's always populations of people who aren't heard and are voiceless. And so I felt that my passion could be redirected into an arena where I could be an advocate people who were less fortunate than myself. Obviously, as a product of immigrant parents, I didn't have a lot of money, a lot of things, but I had a love and a push toward bettering myself. And I think that was my motivation. It was partly to make my parents proud, right? Because they sacrificed so much, but also an avenue to redirect my passion for the less fortunate. Dr. Diana, we know that you, after law school, sort of in applying that that passion, as you just said, became an assistant public defender and did that for quite a while in Cook County. And so at a certain point, I think you you also decided, particularly around one, one case maybe, that you were going to transition out of that role and go more in the, the psych direction. So I'm curious what being a public defender meant to you and then why you decided to make the transition into more of the psychology space as well. Yeah, I I think that when I took the job as an assistant public defender, it felt like an opportunity to represent poor and indigent people who weren't able to hire an attorney to represent themselves equally in the court system. So it was a real passion for me, but I have to say it was a real wake-up call for me as well because I was really unaware, despite the fact that I grew up in a blue-collar neighborhood in the city and many of my friends that I grew up with succumbed to substance use issues or a lack of education, I wasn't prepared to see what happens within the criminal justice system. So when I first started, I uh, was in the domestic violence courtrooms, which was a newer courtroom just based on the acute level of need in that particular area. And I would say that my uh, push into mental health was a series of events, not just one particular event. But in that courtroom, what I saw was intergenerational dysfunction, significant substance use problems, anger management issues, mental health issues, and certainly just family dynamics that were really problematic. It kind of laid the foundation for hmm, what's going on here. And then, of course, uh, when I was a public defender, we were in this big drug war. And so then I worked in the drug court, sex and violence courtrooms. And then the felony courtroom says 26 in California, which is the main criminal courthouse in the city. And I have to say, looking back, I don't think there was a single case where mental health or substance use or intergenerational dysfunction wasn't part of the equation. And so at those times, specialty courts weren't part of the equation, right? We didn't think outside the box. But I did work with certain judges who really inspired 
me in many ways. Um, one, my first judge that I saw was Judge Sheila Murphy, who's weirdly on my board of directors now, but she was this <laughs> innovative. It was like, you know, life has this way of becoming cyclical. Yeah. She was mm-hmm. this innovative thinker. She was a woman on the bench where there weren't a lot of women. And she really believed in support groups in the domestic violence courtrooms. And she had to really push against the system to try to create traction. And that was super inspirational to me because it was different than just incarceration or not dealing with the social issues. And then I worked in front of a judge named Thaddeus Kowalski, who was also an innovative thinker. And he was in a branch court in a police station. And he would have people who were in recovery themselves, former prostitutes to help with women who were street workers. And he would have former gang members to talk to young kids who were uh, starting to dabble in the gang infested areas in their neighborhood. And while some of those kids weren't saved and some of those women weren't saved, it gave people a different direction to navigate into for those who wanted some sort of change and support system. And so those people became really my idols and mentors. And then in the process of litigating really awful cases, particularly one case that I was co-chair on on a a murder case of a 19-year-old who killed his seven-year-old brother, when the discovery was tendered to us, we just saw a, a legacy of lost opportunities. That's how I like to say it. In that this child was poor, he was a minority, he lived in a poor community, his parents separated, his mother left, and his father raised him and got remarried. He was a victim of physical abuse, sexual abuse, and neglect. And the weekend before he killed his half-brother, because his mother came back into his life as a 16-year-old, he checked himself into a hospital, but because he was poor, they held him on a 72-hour hold. He was released. And then within 36 hours, he murdered his half-brother. And so that one really shook me off. I thought, my gosh, here we have a 19-year-old we're litigating for his life. It wasn't a question of guilt. And I thought, could can I do more? Is there, can I get in earlier? Is there an opportunity for me to try to stem the tide before it gets to this because it felt like the end of the tracks on a train for me, the last depot rather than, you know, when I saw that legacy of lost opportunities, it really drove me and made me think about redirecting my life in a different way. You told us, Dr. Diana, that you initially applied to the master's program in clinical psychology with the intention of getting better at your current job right? and then realized that you were a lifetime learner. You felt this great passion for what you were learning in the clinical psychology program. Can you tell us a little bit about how you were able to move from being a public defender to a clinical psychologist? You know, I always say there's like a grief and loss process associated yeah. with changing careers because it wasn't that I didn't love what I did, but It was, you know, I I was a mother of three by that time. My husband worked out of state. And at that time, you know, there were no job share programs. There were no accommodations. There was no part-time. And, you know, we still see that problem in the laws related to women who are parenting, right? There's just this 
what are my options? How much can I give? And then how do I create work-life balance for some semblance of it? Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was this process of what, what can I do? What do I love? What am I passionate about? And I had to go back to what made me go to law school is like, mm-hmm. you know, this advocacy, this kind of helping the unfortunate in a way, maybe a different way from a different lens. Because now I had a body of experience. And I remember having a conversation with my husband. I'm like, I'm thinking of going back to school. And, you know, not to say that I didn't rule out medical school. And then I was like, oh, God, the blood factor again. (laughs) I can't do it. But it was this, what do I, how can I recreate myself? And it's very scary. It's very uncomfortable. And I remember we went on vacation and I was just kind of like meditating and thinking about it. And then I walked up and said to my husband, well, what do you think about me going back to school and getting my master's in this? And he said, I think you'd be great at it. And I said, but, you know, I think I'm too old. And, you know, I was in my 30s. So it was, (laughs) it wasn't like I was too old, but it felt like that's a weird time to reinvent yourself. Mm -hmm. And he said to me, gosh, you know what? If I had to go to therapy, I wouldn't go to a 20 something person. (laughs) What would they be able to tell me? I'd want to go to someone who was like older like you. And I was like, okay, I think you insulted me and then encouraged me. I, you know, I took that. I mean, I, I was, I have raised in my life where my husband supported me despite not understanding why I was doing certain things, but I do remember like concept of walking the classroom and it was an alcohol abuse class, right? About the use of alcohol and what it does to your brain. And, and I remember it was like a three hour class, half the class was falling asleep. And I walked out of there feeling energized in a way I hadn't in years. I felt like it was like, wow, this is feeding my soul. This is so good for me. And it was then that I recognized that sometimes in our careers, we become stagnant because we're not learning. We're not learning new things. We're not pushing ourselves beyond our comfort level. And if we can push past that, sometimes there's great things in front of us, but the fear holds us back, right? The, we get used to feeling comfortable, even if we know it's not great for us. And so I always now in therapy tell people, push through that discomfort, push through that fear, because you do come out the other side. And even in my studies, when I went to that master's program, it was a really rigorous program. And there were times when I wanted to go back because it was easier to do what I knew than to try something new. And I remember the first time I had to interview a client, we had to tape ourselves. And I was like, yeah, I did really good. That's so easy for me. And my professor just turned to me and he said, just so we're clear, you're acting as a clinician and not as an attorney. So don't feel (laughs) you have to get all the facts of the case because this is more about the feelings. And it was this epiphany of, oh my gosh, I have a lot of work to do because to leave that hat behind and put on another one is going to be hard. And so when I tell people in their own lives, if you're unhappy, you know, that takes a toll on you. If you're feeling like you can't have the life you want as a mother, as a woman, as a man, let's look at possibly changing some of the circumstances to make you thrive and prosper, you know, and for some it's staying for some, it's changing some circumstances and for others, it's sometimes looking at new careers. And so once I got my master's, I had another discussion with my husband and I said, how do you feel if I 
went and got my doctor and he goes, are you asking me how I feel or if I would support you? You know, this moment of thank God that I have someone who, despite my craziness to do something more, willing to kind of push me uh, for myself. Dr. Diana, I love that you not only gave yourself permission to kind of reinvent yourself, but also that you pointed out something important, which is this, that you allowed yourself to grieve the loss of that other career. And of course, it's not totally lost. It's incorporated very much into the work you do today. But I think it is important. I know, you know, Hallie and I both switched career trajectories in our 30s as well. And we went through a similar reckoning and, you know, really had to come to terms with like, okay, it's okay to let that piece go. And I think that kind of grieving piece around it, as well as recognizing things that are just energizing you, as you said, and saying, oh man, yes, I had been missing that energy and that life in the, in the career that I was in previously are both sort of two really important pieces to pick up on if you are going to take a leap and make a big change. Yeah. And I think like I always say, change is a process. It's not one big event, right? First, you don't even recognize that there's a problem, right? And then maybe people are like, what's wrong with you? You're so crabby or, you know, you seem so, you seem so different, right? And sometimes others in our lives point it out to us. There's a wear and tear to the work we do. And then, then you're like, yeah, what is wrong with me? Why do I feel this way? Why am I this unhappy? And it's this continuum, right? Where you can get stuck in that. Yeah, now I realize I'm unhappy, but I can't do anything different. You know, sometimes we need to be pushed into the action phase of change, but it's really hard. And it was not easy for me. I don't know if it's easy. I I, I don't think I ever met anyone where it's easy. And I do remember a period, you know, as if you're a woman and then you become a mother, there's this part of you that thinks, well, maybe I should stay home with my kids, right? Because sometimes that template can be passed down to you from your own family, from the communities you live in. And then if you stay home and you're like, oh my God, I can't do this full time, then we feel guilty about that. And then we're like, what's wrong with me? Why can't I just be a stay-at-home mom? And, you know, I do think like I've passed this on to my own daughters that sometimes we need a different level of stimulation. It doesn't make us defective. It just means that we have another area that needs to be tapped into for complete health and wellness. But I do remember that period of transition where I would introduce myself and I would say, I'm an assistant public defender, you know, and it was this holding on to something that was so meaningful. I am so grateful to those people, to the people I worked with, my clients, you know, and I still feel that path in some ways, in some arenas where I get pulled in that direction, but that's okay, right? It's just a recognition that it's never going to leave and that we're entering a new chapter. And we get to make new chapters in our lives over and over again, even if the one before wasn't. You mentioned to us that a lot, that you as an attorney kind of over-identified with being an attorney. Why do you think that so many of us are like that? Why do you think that's kind of a common thread among attorneys to over-identify with our careers? Well, I think in order to go to professional school, we're a certain personality type, right? We're definitely yeah. type A. I mean, if you ask anyone <laughs> in my life, you know, I, I call myself a maladaptive perfectionist in recovery that you know, my, my standard for myself is exhausting. And my, you know, I have to really be careful 
that I don't infer that on others. And so we're very intent, right? And so we often define ourselves by what we do. And you'll see that played out into our, you know, if you have children, that our children become a vessel and reflection of who we are when really they're separate people, right? And so we get worried if they're not highly motivated or good at school or a good athlete. And you see this kind of warped kind of perfectionism passed down and sometimes kids can't rise to the occasion. You know, I have three kids and one's a type B and we always say, my gosh, you poor thing, because my other two are type A, I'm a type A, my husband is a type A and we've had to adapt to her and she's successful too, but she doesn't pursue life with such an intensity. And there is a cost for that, right? And so that over-identification, that's why sometimes we can't let things go when it's time to leave, right? I always say, I need more time to leave a party than to be at a party because of how I'm built. And I have to build in that time because it's like, even there's even an intensity to that. And so I've had, as I've given myself grace, that there are some days where I sometimes have to petition the thing, does it bother me still to the same course? Do I not like people coming in my house when it's not seen? Of course, <laughs> right? Um, these are quirks of nature uh, that are part of what makes me thrive and be successful, but also mm-hmm. undermine me. And, you know, I liken it to a story after my second child was born. I have a neighbor who's really wonderful she basically came over to give me a gift a couple of weeks after my son was born and my daughter was only a year old. I opened the door when the doorbell rang and she said, hi, I'm here to give you a gift. And she was always known for being blunt. And I said, oh, thank you. And she goes, what is that smell? And I said, what smell? And I, at first I was worried that it smelled like diapers or something. And um, she said, it smells like bleach in this house. And I said, oh yeah, no, I just cleaned the kitchen floor. And she goes, didn't you just have a baby? That's not normal. And I started <laughs> laughing and she was right, right? Why, why was there such an intensity and need for my house to remain the same despite having a newborn and a one-year-old in the house? And I dropped into bed every night exhausted just based on my own standards, right? So we do that. It's like, we know it's not good for us. Sometimes we have a hard time creating balance in our lives because we're too intense in one direction. So you fill up one bucket too much. And and that's why we see a lot of numbing behaviors, a lot of mental health issues, a lot of substance use issues in this profession, because you can only do that so long before the wheels come off the bus. We have to recognize that despite these personality traits, we're still human beings and we require nurturing, time off. We require healthy hobbies. We require a break from our family, from our children, from our work. And so I really encourage filling up more than one bucket. Dr. Diana, it sounds like that's probably something you help people with at the Illinois Lawyers Assistance Program where you are the executive director. Can you tell us a little bit about what LAP does and your work there? Interestingly enough, I came on board as just a 
I don't like to say this, but just as a, a clinician, I had uh, done a presentation somewhere and someone said, wow, you should really work at LAP because you are a lawyer and a clinician. And I said, LAP. And actually, I went home and I researched it because I, I didn't know much about it. And in all honesty, I went to uh, you know, uh, law school out of state. But I really think that I didn't know about LAP because LAP wasn't really promoted. Mental health and problems in the law weren't really talked about when I was a lawyer. I was surrounded by dysfunction. And so I investigated and I thought, wow, that's really cool. And then I just sent an email just saying, if you ever need any help as a clinician, and they had me come in for an interview. And then a year later, uh, the executive director left and I applied for the position. And lo and behold, three years later, I've been the executive director. Uh, and it's really been an opportunity of a lifetime because it's like, it's taking both of my careers. It's the knowledge, of which we know is super stressful, regardless of where you work, right? Mm-hmm. If you work in a government agency, it's the caseloads, it's the low pay, it's just overwhelming trauma that you face all the time. If you're mad mal, if you're personal injury, if you're, mm-hmm. you see catastrophic injuries and people who can't be made whole, you work in juvenile, you see dysfunction. If you work in immigration, you see sadness and, and torn families. And it's like forever, there's this, you know, vicarious trauma and there's this high rate of compassion fatigue and burnout. So I felt like, you know, wow, perfect blend. But it was also motivating for me because one of my friends lost her brother to suicide, who was a very, really well-loved attorney. And I thought, wow, I wonder if I can give back to the very profession who nurtured and raised me because I was really a baby when I entered the field of law. You know, in the old days, uh, you could go to school when you were four and my mother shipped me off early. And so you know, <laughs> oh, wow. I, I went to college at 17, you know, I mean, I went straight to law school and I was like 24 and really fresh and, and naive when I became a lawyer. And there were so many wonderful people who nurtured me and fostered my passion and love and I'm forever to all of them and it not just public defenders but state attorneys and judges and all the people in the system and so I felt like you know you get to a point in your lifetime where you want to give back and so the lawyers assistance program is that program right it's free it's confidential in Illinois it's really robust in that we're clinicians we provide direct services my partner my deputy director Tony Passioni and I also are trained interventionists so we if necessary, can force people's hands and get them into treatment. We don't like to do that. I do a lot of presentations, a lot of um, work in order to get the message out so that there's not lawyers like me who didn't know about the program and can access help. And what we're seeing is our self-referral program increases every year. And we're about up to 73% now of lawyers, law students, and judges self-refer. And last year, the Supreme Court, the chief justice approved a program where the chief judges could make direct referrals to lab for problematic judges or lawyers that they were concerned about. And as a result, we're getting more judges who are accessing lab. And the beauty of lab is that it's confidential with immunity. And what we see under COVID, our services expanded into telehealth. And now it's equal access across the state. So we have a lot of rural attorneys, judges, people who never had access to the same services at LAP, where if you're in a small community and you're a prominent person, you're not going to go see a mental health provider or go to someone and say, I have a raging substance abuse program. And so we now feel 
that we provide robust services throughout the state to all people through our telehealth platforms, through our referral services. We do assessments, we do one-on-one therapy, we have groups for men, women, and young lawyers, and we do trainings yearly. Our next training is June 10, where people become part of the LAP family and to become peer support to help us get better at our work. And so everyone is able to identify people who are struggling. And one of the things that still really the sadness of my job is every time we lose a lawyer or a member of the legal profession to suicide, you know, I read the obituaries every day and I say, did we know about this person? And if not, why not? How is it that this person was amongst us and nobody knew what to do, what to say, or how to get that person the help they need? So that motivates me to just get out there more, spread the message, get more people on board and just say, help us get better at helping those who can't or won't act with help. Dr. Diana, in addition to sort of, as you said, spreading the the word about this and starting to talk about it and destigmatize it, you gave us some really stark statistics. I think it's one in four individuals are currently facing mental health issues. About 42.5 million people, you know, are, are experiencing anxiety. Overdose deaths, I think, were up about 30% last year alone. Obviously, there is a large mental health, I would say, crisis, you know, within the legal community. So I'm curious if you have any thoughts about how we can start to, you know, in small ways or or big ways, address this. And obviously, you're doing that through the work that you're doing. But for, for young lawyers who are entering the profession, what advice would you give them to start to build healthy habits around mental health? Yeah, I mean, the reality is, is COVID, you know, isolation, has decompensated a large population of people throughout the world, right? What I say to people all the time is college campuses are overwhelmed by mental health issues. They can't uh, really meet the level of need of the people who are in college and those people go to professional schools, right? And 42 and a half million people indicate that they're struggling with anxiety, But the reality is 73% of college-age students have had a mental health crisis, right? That's three out of four of these kids who go are feeders. And then a quarter of them are on medication for mental health issues. So the reality is, this is the new reality, right? So now how do we, as a profession, get better? How do we tell people they need to take care of themselves in order to have longevity in this career. And we have mental, um, we, LAP does provide office hours in every law school that says they want it. Now there's nine in the state of Illinois, two don't use that service, but we have a clinician that goes on a quarterly basis where LAP is available to all their students. We have a get helpline where people send us, I need help. And then, unfortunately, the law schools are not funded and uh, they're always in need of long-term mental health. So we have a big, robust referral list and all law schools have uh, mental health services. However, a lot of the students, for whatever reason, can't get into them or don't use them. But we have uh, referrals. We have support groups as well. We do educational 
presentations to as many law schools will allow us to come. I think really blowing the lid off and saying this is more normal than not is the first step, right? Because I Mm -hmm. think, you know, we've all struggled in our lives, right? Whether it's situational or we have a mental health problem, or we all know someone who has a mental health issue or a substance use issue in our family. That is undeniable. And we have to be honest about that. We often feel shame about that. And I always say shame lives in secrecy. So to own it is probably the first step to recovery, right? To say, I need support is, you know, the second step. And then to create scaffolding and support throughout your lawyering career, right? To have someone who can be helpful to you, whether it's a family member, a mental health person, to say it looks like you're not balanced again. And and to create an awareness that taking care of yourself is mandatory. It's not optional. It's not something that you check in on every few years. You need to check in on it all the time, right? And I think I when I spoke to you briefly about this podcast, I told you that I am obsessed as a typical type A about my gas tank in my car and that little (laughs) red zone. And I don't have a strong belief that there's gas in that, but my husband has tried to convince me for 30 years that there is. (laughs) And I, you know, no manual has said how much there is. And so I always fill up my gas tank. If it gets to the quarter mark, it's a bad week for me. But my gas tank, I don't like it on the quarter or below and never in the red. But I like in that we never do that with ourselves, right? Um, How many times have we burned the midnight candle and just kept going at it until we collapse in illness or exhaustion and then can't function? And, you know, stress has to be optimal cortisol can't be infused into our system on a perpetual basis, or we decline in functioning over time, right? Yeah, we can do it maybe for a period of time, but then things are going to start to get worse for you, right? You may increase your use of alcohol. You may increase your use of marijuana to relax or for sleep purposes. You might have sleep anxiety. You might every Sunday dread going to work. You might start to have interpersonal dysfunction, right? And problems in your relationship. You might have problems with your children if you have children. You know, we all have different kinds of numbing devices, but I think the pandemic highlights what each of us has as a numbing device because of the 30% increase in overdose deaths in a one-year period, right? Because of the rate of increase of mental health problems, because of the escalating use of alcohol and marijuana under those really stressful conditions. And, you know, there's the pandemic 29 pounds. And so I would tell everyone, now is the time to look backwards and say, what did I do that was good? or bad, right? And just to be really honest, because we've never really had a window like that in our time, in our lifetime. We've never really had time to kind of watch ourselves. And so if you're increased in alcohol, gambling, sex addiction, food, whatever it is, right? Be honest. And then really let's try to manage those pieces. That's data that we can use moving forward about what do we need to do to minimize dysfunction in the future and create 
a roadmap for longevity. You know, what happens is, is that a lot of people don't recognize that some of their behaviors are problematic. You know, you start off with a couple cocktails every other day, then it increases to every, every day, then you drink heavily on the weekends, and then something happens, right? And I really ask people to take a hard look at themselves to say, what gave me energy and what drained me of energy? Because that equation can help us learn to help you moving into the future. This is all, you know, incredibly helpful advice. And I love that you said kind of blow the lid off of this, this idea that like mental health isn't an issue among many, many people. And all of us are kind of facing it to some, to some degree, whether it's, you know, stress or anxiety or something more severe. I know that when we were in law school, um, we were just on the brink of starting to talk about these things. And I know with my students, I really try to make it something that's front and center now. So for those individuals who are in law school, uh, law students in particular, they obviously have high levels of stress and anxiety. They're just entering the profession. So for people who are still in law school, do you have any advice about how to cope with the stress and anxiety and the potential mental health issues that, that they might be facing? Yeah, I get help, right? Be honest. If it's really bad, there's nothing wrong with starting now to put in the work to stay or get healthier. Again, being honest. And secondly, creating something, encouraging not just putting, like I said, as lawyers, only thinking of yourself as a lawyer. You're more than that. Having healthy relationships, right? You can look at your relationships, right? We saw at LAP, relationship problems increase because people were in small environments and some of the problems that they hadn't dealt with were much more amplified in a smaller, intense setting. If you're in chaotic relationships or unhealthy relationships, now's the time to look at those because, yeah, there's always problems in relationships, but they shouldn't cause chaos and constant decompensation of the human being. And so clean up all the things in your life. If, you're, if your drinking has increased, watch that. If your smoking of marijuana has increased, watch that. If your use of prescription meds other than antidepressants, um, watch that, right? Because we can convince ourselves that because something's legal, it's good for us when it's not, right? And I always say four out of the five top addictive substances are legal and, you know, but that doesn't mean that it's good for us in high quantities. So just really start to engage in self-care as every day, even if it's 15 minutes, do something for yourselves. I don't know about you, but remember when you were in law school, I don't think I picked up a book to read like <laughs> for the first five years, like three years of law school and two years into my career. Because it was like, there was no time. I just was like always behind. Like, I could never yep. stop. It was self-care. Thank God I had a hobby that I engaged in. But it would fall off every once in a while. And then I would realize I was becoming unhealthy. But find something that you're passionate about outside. Have healthy interpersonal relationships have social connections where you can process, right? Join LAP's peer support group for young lawyers so that you can um, discuss all the stressors you're facing. Because here's the thing is, we say so stuck in our head and the way we do things that I always say, when you go into a peer support group, you may find other people who do it better 
or who have some advice because they're living the same advice, that can help you. Have you ever been at a presentation and someone says something and you're like, what? Like, that is so meaningful. And you scribble down, whether it's a quote or, and, and that's the point of peer support and those office hours is so helpful in knowing it's not just me. This is difficult. This person's doing this and that seems to work for them. I'm going to try it. Oh, well, that didn't work. Maybe I'll try something else. And and knowing that life is just sometimes it's a process of elimination until we find things that make us calm or reduce our anxiety or help us to navigate life more successfully. So I would encourage people to allow themselves 15 minutes a day for them. Meaning if you want to sit in the bathtub and listen to music blasting, that's mm-hmm. fine. If you just want to put your headphones on and dance silly, that's mm-hmm. fine, right? During COVID, we we saw really problematic behavior. So, you know, I'm definitely getting older, but I always love to do new things to keep me fresh. And my younger daughter had come home and was living with us for a time before she uh, started her career and she said to me, let's have a hula hoop contest. And I said, hula hoop? I haven't, I haven't <laughs> used a hula hoop in years, but I realized I couldn't hula hoop anymore. At some point I lost it. It was kind of like cartwheels, you know, like it used to be like, remember how you used to do cartwheels all the time and you were efficient and, and I realized I couldn't hula hoop anymore. So I got a big mirror went in the basement, started watching videos, ordered a hula hoop. And for three months, I hula hooped nonstop. And then I, yeah. And then when, you know, last year I went to a, a, mar- a, like a walk marathon and someone asked me if I could juggle and I lost my juggling skills. So <laughs> I <laughs> juggling before that event in case someone asked me, but this is how we stay fresh. And you laugh at yourself, right? Because it brings out that mm-hmm. inner child and it's, we're never finished products. It's like, be a kid sometimes, do some things. Why are rocking chairs helpful? Because it's a self-soothing technique. And many of us don't know how to self-soothe, whether it's, you know, wrapping ourselves in a warm blanket, rocking in a chair, hula hooping, whatever it is, sitting on a swing and going back and forth. Those can be really powerful mechanisms for self-soothing. And that's why kids do them. That movement is something that can be really helpful to people who are highly anxious and stressed. So tap into your inner child sometimes when you don't know what to do. Dr. Diana, you've given us so much great advice for different ways that we can check in on ourselves and the importance of doing so. And some really fun things to try. I'm thinking about that hula hoop thing. I'm wondering if you could tell us, what does success mean to you? Yeah, it's a great word. I would say it changed over the course of my lifetime, right? Success when I was in my early 20s was about graduating law school, passing the bar. Then success became about working in the criminal justice system. And then success became about navigating the levels of my career, right? And being at 26 in California. And and I can tell you that my greatest success has not just been my career, right? It's really, um, for me now at this stage of my life, it's about paying it forward and paying it backwards, right? To make 
to improve the life circumstances of all those that I touch. That to me is successful. To be a good mother and a good friend and a good partner, to do as much as I can within uh, the mechanism of how much I can give on on any given day to every human being that I encounter along the way, right? To recognize that suffering is universal and to share that with others so that they don't feel alone and to create this spread of we're all in this together and that I want people to live well and prosper and through the uses of our services, through the uses of other services, through the spreading of the message that self-care is mandatory, it's not optional, and to start sooner to live your best life. So success to me is living a life with purpose and somehow giving back to all those that you come into contact with. Dr. Diana, we asked that question to all of our guests, but I am particularly interested in your answer as it relates to mental health because, you know, you essentially said, of course, your career has always been so important to you in many different ways as a lawyer, um, as a clinical psychologist, and then kind of in bringing those things together. But it's so much more than that. And I think that really ties into the mental health piece really nicely because, yes, we are type A oftentimes, as you (laughs) said, like we want to, you know, check those boxes, climb the ladder, all those things. But in order to be able to do that in a healthy, productive way, it is oftentimes, I think, defining success more broadly to include a lot of other things in our life as well. Yeah, I think, you know, what the statistics will show and studies will show that success is not about pay, it's not about title, it's not about salary, it's not about where you work. It's about internal mechanisms. It's about fulfilling value and core beliefs and this ability to leave a legacy of love, care, and and to make as many people's lives better than when you came into it, right? And, and we want to, you know, hopefully pass that legacy on to our children and to the young lawyers who are out there that whatever you do, make it a value-based career based on something because that will sustain you longer than just money, power, prestige, um, because I meet a lot of people who have all of that and aren't really happy. And studies show that over and over again. Dr. Diana, thank you for helping us bring this message to our listeners, um, sharing about your own story and talking about some of the ways that we can all improve our mental health and fun ways to do it too. If you'd like to learn more about the Illinois Lawyers Assistance Program, you can go to IllinoisLAP.org. And Dr. Diana, thank you so much for being here with us today. It was great to meet you and we appreciate your sharing your expertise with our listeners. Thank you so much for having me. And you know, I would just leave it with don't suffer in silence and alone. There are many resources for you in this day and age. And even if you can't find one, you can always send a message in the Get Helpline at LAP. If you do it in partnership with people, you will find more joy later on in your life rather than trying to manage the time well. Thank you, Dr. Diana. Thank you. Personal jurisdiction is powered and distributed by Simplecast. You don't have to wait until next week to hear more. You can find us online at personaljxpod.com and on Twitter at personaljxpod. 
Don't forget to subscribe to Personal Jurisdiction on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen so that you can be updated on the latest and greatest from Personal Jurisdiction. If you like what you hear, make sure to rate us five stars and leave a positive review so that other listeners can find our show too. 